Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. begin by uh, reading God's word. It's from Matthew chapter 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this, mean, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Today uh, we have a special privilege uh, for us. Um, so many of you, uh, some, some of you throughout this week have gotten to, to meet him, but um, we have a, a guest speaker today. His name's Aaron Boswell. So I'll just tell you a little about him. I'm going to invite him to, to come up as, as I introduce him here. Um, but some of you have gotten to meet him at the food bank and at our members gathering uh, this week. Uh, but if you haven't, so Aaron uh, is the original planter of this church. So he moved here nine years ago, ten years ago, something like that. <laughs> Nearly a decade ago. Life? I don't know. A while ago. About a decade ago. How's that sound? Um, to, to move here uh, to, to plant Renaissance Church. Um, he's been a, a really impactful person in my life. So before this, he started a church in Winnipeg called Renaissance Church Winnipeg. And it's where I met him. It's where I became. With yeah, just the same. Yeah. But you do. Well, trails, though. It's well, kind of out of the box. That's his new church. Zone. Yeah, <laughs> big things are going to happen there. Um, so in at Renaissance Winnipeg is where I met him. Um, through him sharing the gospel with me, I became a Christian and uh, got plugged into to serving at that church. Uh, and a couple of years later, uh, my wife and I followed him and Samantha, his wife, out here to help with the, the church plant. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to have you with us. Uh, today uh, and here you preach uh, the word for us and uh, so excited for for that and um, yeah I want to pray for you as we begin and then we'll hear God's word preached. Um, God we thank you for uh, Aaron and just the 
how you're working in his life, how you've used him to, to share the gospel with many people, um, and how, um, yeah, some, including myself, have come to, to faith in you because of it. Um, we just ask that you would speak through him today as he preaches your word. God, would we have hearts that are open to, to receive it um, and to hear it and to understand it um, just from your Holy Spirit? And uh, would we uh, leave here with uh, just a satisfaction with Jesus and, and um, God, that Jesus would be magnified today. And uh, um, yeah, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It might fall over. Uh, I'm not used to holding things. I'm too ADHD to do that. So I'll just talk loud and hopefully this will work. Uh, so again, good morning. If I haven't got to meet you, uh, as Graham said, my name is Aaron. Um, and I, I was thinking about as I was getting ready to be here with you today about how much of an honor it is for me to be able to do so. As Graham mentioned, um, it, it's, it's kind of a weird thing for you to meet someone. Uh, we've been best friends for about 12 years now. Um, so I got to watch Graham go from someone kind of exploring who Jesus was to then becoming a Christian to then I baptized him and Melissa on the same day, which is really cool. And then they, were you already dating at that point? I don't think, maybe, maybe I orchestrated that. So then they they, they started dating. I didn't. Uh, they, they started dating. Uh, and then they got married. And then Graham became uh, one of the deacons at our church. Then a couple of years later moved here to help us. And, and then throughout the last number of years uh, have just seen God continue over and over again to confirm a lot of things in his life. Leading to the point where now uh, he's helping as the lead pastor uh, here. Which is just a really cool thing. So it's, a, it's an honor not only to preach at a church that you planted where nobody knows you. That's weird. Uh, but then as well to, to just really get to see what the Lord has done in Graham and Melissa's life is a, is a really unique uh, and special thing. And, uh, and I'm thankful as well for the opportunity that we've had to meet many of you who, uh, again, I never got to meet while planting this church. Uh, but then some of you who uh, I did. Uh, so if you guys know Francois, so Francois, he is, I think other than Graham, one of the most longest people that has, have been here. Uh, and so uh, I knew Francois back be, way before you guys ever got married. Uh, so that's cool too, to watch like how the Lord has, has led you guys and blessed y'all. So, um, and then for others of you, uh, you're like, you're just meeting me today and you have zero idea who I am. So I'm thankful to just even for with you uh, to be able to open up God's word uh, and to uh, walk through that portion of scripture that Graham just had read for us uh, in the gospel of Matthew. Now, as we get started today, I wanted to do so by asking you a question. Now, I don't want you to shout out answers at me. Don't shout at me. Just think about it. All right? So if you were going to pick two or three practices or things that you regularly do that define your life, your everyday life, what would they be? Think about it. If you're thinking through, if you were to pick two or three practices that you regularly do that define your everyday life, what would it be? Now, I don't mean important events maybe from your past, but rather what I'm meaning are three customs, maybe rituals that you give yourself to on a regular basis that have and continue to have shaped your life as a person. That might be a hard question to process through right out of the gate uh, if you've, you've never considered it. But, but I ask that question because if you were a devout Jew living at the time of Jesus that we just had read for us in the Gospel of Matthew, or, or maybe you're a devout Jew living in Le Plateau today, you would have, you would have at least three really solid answers uh, of some things that would define your life. Right? So firstly, what would define your life is what you ate. Right? So is this kosher? Is this not kosher, right? So you, you spend a lot of time, a lot of attention on a daily basis that would define you. That, that daily practice would impact where you went for a restaurant, what you did later on that day. Are they going to have food I can eat? Uh, it's kind of like if some of you have allergies and you show up at a potluck and you're like, gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, what can I have? And they give you a glass of water. You know what I mean? It's like that. So, so what you ate is a big deal. Secondly, along with that, another practice that would define your life would be your cleansing rituals. Various washings or rituals or customs. So that might be as simple as some sort of a purification before a meal or even something as complex as purification before Yom Kippur. 
But you, you would have some kind of cleansing rituals, and that, that would define a lot of your everyday life. And the third one would be Sabbath keeping. Right? So you'd be sure to keep the Sabbath every week. Thus, your entire life would, would really center around this weekly Sabbath time, preparing for it, planning for it, and then participating in Sabbath. And there's a lot of customs about what food you would prepare for that day, what you're doing on that day, what you're not doing on that day. And it's a practice that would just define your every day or every, uh, every weekly kind of rhythm. Now, interestingly enough, if you're going to study the Gospels, one thing that you would notice is that those are the kind of the three things that come up over and over again in Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry. And he kind of just presses on them. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, you do this. Why do you do that? Uh, and just in, in kind of as we saw today, it makes the Pharisees not respond very well. They don't like it. Uh, and he keeps doing this kind of over and over again in his preaching and t- teaching ministry in really uncomfortable ways. And, and so, so what we're seeing in today's scripture is that Jesus just presses in on the Sabbath. Now, now with uh, as many Jews as we have in our city who might be either, uh, you, you might be someone who was Jewish or you might have friends or neighbors who are Jewish. The, the word Sabbath probably isn't a, a new word for us uh, in our context. Um, but, but you might not know what the word Sabbath means. So if we we're going to try to define what does the word Sabbath mean, uh, it's a word that means to cease or to rest, which kind of sounds nice. You're like, ah, rest sounds good. I have three small children. Rest is a wonderful thing, uh, right? To cease from doing something, you're like, oh, good. When you finish something, you're like, oh, praise God, I'm done with that thing. Uh, and that's what kind of the word Sabbath means, to cease or to rest. Now, if we were going to trace the word Sabbath throughout the Bible to understand why it's in the Bible, how it's used in the Bible, and what it means, we would actually trace the word Sabbath all the way back to the very first book in the Bible called the book of Genesis. And if we look there in chapter or big bold number 2, and then verses or smaller numbers 1 to 3, what we'd read about is how God created everything that existed, and then when his work was done, this is what we read. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the, uh, sorry, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So you see right there from the very beginning of the Bible, after God created everything that exists, he rested. He Sabbathed. Well, that's going to keep falling down. Graham, I don't know what to do. I'm going to hold this until you can help me. This I broke. I'll pay for that. Uh, we, we, rem- we remember, though, that, uh, that God didn't rest. Like, like you and I, we have to Sabbath. We have to rest. Actually, I can hold this. This is fine. I'm ADD enough for this. If you want this, you can have it. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Um, so, so remember, though, God didn't rest because he was tired. Like, God didn't need to just, like, veg out on the couch for the day because he had done too much. He wasn't like watching Seinfeld reruns or anything like that, um, which I guess he could have done because he's God, but, but he didn't do that. He wasn't tired and just needed a breather. Rather, he ceased from his creative work. He, he was finished with what he planned, and that's why he rested. Now, another thing that we need to note from Genesis chapter 2 is that we don't see anything in that chapter of any kind of a, a command for Adam and Eve to rest. Isn't that interesting? Like, that would have been a good moment for them to say, so now I rested on the seventh day, so... Every seven days, you should rest. We don't see that in the book of Genesis. In fact, that doesn't become a command until we get to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And it's there where all of Israel hears God's booming voice give to them what we often refer to as the Ten Commandments. Remember that moment? Maybe you remember the Charlton Heston movie? Something like that. Uh, So where we bolt out, these are the Ten Commandments. So it's there where we actually see, and it's the fourth commandment. So it made the top ten. So number four is Israel is told to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. We read, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or a sojourner or an immigrant who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right, so in Genesis we see God, God rested when his work was finished. Then in Exodus the Sabbath is given as a command for Israel so that they might remember that God is the creator of everything that exists. 
And when his work was finished, he rested. Thus once, once uh, a week, all of Israel, including any servants and animals, are all to rest. Also to cease from their work, which was revolutionary back in the day. There was, there's not, a, there's not a, an aspect of your life where it would be a good thing for you to have your animals or your servants rest. You would want them working all day, every day, as much as you can get work out of them. Kind of how some of you feel like your bosses feel about you, uh, right? All day, every day. And yet what the Lord says, no, no, it's not just the men who rest. It's everyone, the animals, the immigrants, every single person is to rest and to enjoy this, to cease from their work. So you're not allowed to work one day a week, uh, every week, but you are required by God to have this kind of time where you intentionally inhibit yourself and everyone in your household from any kind of forward progress. So in that time, you're to remember who God is and what he's done in creating everything that exists and that it's he alone who's the one who gives increase and he alone is one who provides for his people. So in the, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the, the Sabbath, then firstly, is given for two big reasons. Firstly, it's given as a test for Israel. Will they trust in the Lord to provide for them? And it was a gift given to them by God to enter into some of the rest that, that God commanded for them. Then, then it's interesting. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, so the fifth book of the Bible, we see another reason is, is added for uh, the giving of the Sabbath. So Moses writes in Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you up out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So as we add those things together, we see the Sabbath day is commanded by God. It's meant for Israel as a gift from God to refrain from work, to remember that God is the one who created all things. God is the one who provides for you. You don't provide for yourself by your diligent, hardworking, but the Lord provides for you. And to remember that God as creator is the one who has saved you out of the land of slavery and redeemed you. So, so there's a, a lot kind of going on there. So the Sabbath then was part of all of the laws that God gave his people to be obeyed. Now this is important because what God does in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is God doesn't crowdsource what he thinks are the best idea for laws. Right? Like God isn't, the creator of the universe doesn't show up and say, all right, I'm thinking no murdering. Everybody, what are we thoughts? Thought, yeah? Okay, that's good. Uh, I'm thinking, yeah, he, that's not how the Lord, he shows up and says, hey, by the way, don't kill people. Uh, and don't do this. And don't, like, gives laws for his covenant people. And so this is kind of part of all of that. Sabbath keeping was part of those commands. So it would be a day of remembering by refraining. To remember by refraining. Worshiping the Lord with God's people and exhorting one another to acts of mercy and kindness. Which is interesting because by the time we get to Matthew chapter 12 and what we just read a moment ago... We see that what was intended by God as a day of mercy and remembering and rest got distorted over time. And it happened really slowly. And as we know, as a, a history of Quebec, religious people are really good at taking the good things of God and slowly distorting them to ruin people's lives. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we see, we see happen here. See, throughout Israel's history... It, it comes from an important part. Throughout Israel's history, what we see is that they have cycles where they would be really faithful to God's commands, including Sabbath keeping for a time. But then they would rebel and they would come under God's discipline. Then they would repent and start being faithful to the law again and God would bless them. And that cycle throughout the Old Testament is basically the continual cycle that you see happen over and over and over again. Until eventually, remember, so Israel, out of Exodus... They leave Egypt and they're headed to the promised land. They finally get to the promised land, but then they're faithless. And what does the Lord do? What does he do? You can now yell at me. What is it? What does he do? He disciplines them, takes them out of the land. So they were in the land. Then he takes them out of the land because they were faithless. They didn't obey God's commands. And then they repent. And then what does the Lord do? Brings them back to the land. So the whole reason why they leave the land and then come back to the land is because they weren't faithful to obey God's commands, his laws. So God disciplined them, took them out, and brought them back in. So if you can imagine, you can imagine, you, if, you, we were, if we were Israel, we got taken out of a land and then brought back into it. When you came back into the land, would you want to be really, really careful that you obeyed all of God's laws again? Or else what would happen to you? You'd go right back into exile. 
That would be terrible. During that time, like the number of people that died and terrible things that happened were just crazy. And so they're like, all right, let's not do that again. That was terrible. And so now on, let's really follow all of God's laws, including Sabbath keeping. However, because they didn't want to come under God's discipline again, what all the religious leaders of Israel started doing was in order to protect them from breaking any of God's laws, they started making a whole whack of traditions and laws in addition to God's laws, but they taught them as God's laws. So if, if this was, let's just pretend we have a little thing here. If this was God's law, if you're thinking, okay, if we break this, we go into exile again. So let's not break this. So instead, let's put a fence around it so that if we break the fence, we don't break the actual law. Logically, that makes sense. That's like, I have little kids. That's what I do with them. I'm like, you will kill yourself if you do this. Don't go outside without me. Why? I don't want them to die. Right? So, so I, I, make, I make laws like that. around, And that's what religious people do. So we take the law of God and we add a fence around it. But then what happened is people will start breaking that fence. And you think, well, if they break that fence, then they're going to break the law. Then we go out of the land. So let's build a secondary fence. So build another fence around that fence that's actually around the law. Then you build another fence around that fence that's around that fence that's around that fence. And you keep on going. And that's exactly what happened with these guys. They keep putting fences around fences around fences. Leading up to the point where even if you're just thinking about Sabbath laws... We get to a point in the Talmud, which is the major compilation of Jewish tradition, that there ends up being 24 chapters in the Talmud that deal with Sabbath-keeping laws. 24 chapters of a book of all that you have to do on the Sabbath. None of which, by the way, are actually in the Bible. None of them are actually part of the law that God gave. And these laws were incredibly extreme. And they have nothing to do with God's word. They're purely made up. And so I wanted to, do, uh, I wanted to share with you a couple of these laws to give you a little taste of what the people at Jesus' time were actually walking through because it's super intense. It's like crazy intense. Are you ready? You with me? I'm going to give you a couple of them. They're going to be funny. I promise. So under these Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry any load more than a dried fig. Now, I don't know how much a dried fig weighs. I guarantee it's not very much. But how do you measure that? Like, is a, how many feathers can I carry? How many pebbles? Like, it's, it's kind of crazy. Not only that, we hear from the Talmud, a Jew couldn't eat anything larger than an olive. But if you bit into half an olive and you found that half of an olive to be rotten and you spat it out, that half was considered to have been eaten by you. Which was a bummer for you, I guess. Also, throwing an object with one hand and then catching it with the other was also prohibited, which I guess if you're a juggler, they didn't want you to be tempted to work on a Saturday. Uh, if, if the Sabbath overtook you, uh, like the sun goes down as you're reaching for food and you have it in your hand, but you haven't eaten it yet, the food was to be dropped and brought back to your mouth, lest you be guilty of carrying a burden. Also, if you're a tailor, do we have any tailors in the room? tailors, you could not carry a needle with you on the Sabbath, lest you be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform some kind of a work. I've never been tempted with that, but I, maybe you have. I don't, I don't know. Also, no fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp. However, if you have a fire that's already lit, it could be used within certain limits. Now, this is why even here in, in Montreal today, there's Orthodox Jews in our midst that even have a Sabbath mode on their refrigerators and appliances. You ever seen that on appliances that you've gotten from various places? I remember Samantha and I, we, my wife, we moved into Little Burgundy and we got these appliances for our apartment and we started looking at them and they're like, this is how to put on Sabbath mode. And I'm like, what is Sabbath mode? What, what is this thing? And then I started learning more. I'm like, oh, it's... This is an important thing for my Jewish neighbors. Um, and, and so this is something even now that appliance companies even recognize as a big deal for some of our neighbors even here in the city. But back to the Talmud. So on the Sabbath, also you couldn't have any baths. So no baths. Because if you somehow knocked out some of the water from the bath onto the floor, like while you're getting a towel, for example, and then you were tempted to clean up the water that dripped off of you onto the floor, you would be guilty of cleaning the floor. So you can't. No baths. 
Um, specifically in regards to Matthew chapter 12, according to regulations, you couldn't pull off any handfuls of grain unless you were starving. But that's a difficult thing to determine. Like my six-year-old tells me he's starving constantly after he's just eaten. So how do you, I don't know how you can tell, are you starving? Are you not starving? Which is also why there was some disagreement, but not like a lot of anger yet at the very beginning of our section of scripture today until we get to verses 9 to 15. Because the last thing that we see from the Talmud that I'll share is if a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep them alive. So you couldn't give someone treatment enough to improve their health. That's forbidden. But determining that's also really hard because if they're dying, you're trying, you're trying to help them improve. But not too much, just enough. Which is hard to figure out. So, as one historian wrote, if you, as you think about all these things around the Sabbath, the Sabbath was anything but a time of rest for the Jews. In fact, at Jesus' time, it had become so oppressive that it was just frustrating and left you just relatively anxious. In fact, the people were sick to death of the system that had been imposed onto them. And they were indeed weary and heavy laden. And if we think about it, if that was the expectation for your Sabbath, it would be harder on that day to rest. And you'd be thinking about more about that than probably anything else. That functionally, it would take a whole lot of work for you to not work. You know what I mean? Like it, it would be wild. So you can see why we, as we read in chapter 12, that there arises this conversation about Jesus and the Sabbath because Jesus keeps on doing what the religious elite do not want him to do. Rather, he keeps kind of pressing in on some of their man-made traditions and views of the Sabbath that are really restrictive and unhelpful for God's people as they've taken a really good gift of God and just twisted it. They've distorted the really good intentions for this day. And so the whole chapter here begins with those first eight verses where Jesus and his disciples are taking off those heads of grain and they're eating them. Thus, knowing the man-made traditions, the Pharisees come to them and they say, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. To which Jesus responds with two things. Firstly, he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry to those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat or for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or... Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Because they're working on that day, performing the normal duty of sacrificing so the Israelites can worship God. Then Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And, and I love this portion of scripture, I think, because Jesus just really presses hard twice, doesn't he? Like he's got two big arguments. And do you notice what both of them begin with? Have you not read? So these guys have memorized the entire Torah. They know all of God's law. It'd be like walking up to an English lit professor and saying, have you not read in Beowulf how this happened? Your English lit professor would say, yeah, I read 13,000 papers on Beowulf every semester. I know what's in Beowulf. Likewise, these guys, he just walks in like, have you not read? It's just this, this huge press and it's a huge rebuke. And in it, Jesus looks at what they say and he says, actually, my disciples are guiltless according to the law, although you're trying to condemn them. And it wasn't just that these men in this particular moment had done this. This was their consistent pattern. And that's what Jesus presses in on. See, the problem here is that these men had committed the Jewish scriptures to memory, but in their actions and because of their commitment to keeping their own traditions, they missed the whole point of the Sabbath. Thus, Jesus offers this stinging rebuke that they have read but not understood the heart of God, the God who desires mercy and who gave the Sabbath as a good gift. Then in verse 9, we see that Jesus enters into their synagogue. And when he got there, verse 10, we see that there was a man there with a withered hand. And I, I don't know if you kind of feel it or not, but the whole way that Matthew writes this scene is like it's being set up for some kind of a, like a showdown. And it's here where the religious leaders, probably looking at Jesus and pointing to the man or motioning to him in some way, they look at Jesus and they just approach him and say, hey, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the whole thing is kind of like they're baiting him. Remember, according to their tradition, it's lawful to provide help, but only if what's being dealt with is life-threatening. So, so this withered hand, therefore, would not be in the category of life-threatening. It could be healed tomorrow. Now, notice with me, there's three really interesting things here. Firstly, did you notice who asked the question? Was it the man with the withered hand? 
it's these religious leaders. They are the one who, who say, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal him on this day? That's fascinating. You can disagree with me on this. But it leads me to believe that the whole thing is kind of a setup. Either planned and organized or in the moment using this man as a pawn to advance their hatred against Jesus. Secondly, it's interesting to note that these religious leaders, either because they have heard of Jesus' healings or maybe seen them himself, they insinuate, even by their question, that Jesus really could heal this guy. I don't know if they've seen Jesus heal other people or, or maybe they've just heard about it. But, but the way that they phrase their question isn't like, oh, well, I don't think maybe you could heal this guy. Could you? They ask actually with relative certainty, you can heal them, but is it the lawful thing to do? And then thirdly, notice they're looking really for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. They ask the question to him, is it lawful to heal? And, and I love that Jesus, instead of just responding with an all-out answer, he responds with a question. He says in Matthew 12, verse 11, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And we don't know here if Jesus might have paused for dramatic effect, to give them some time to mull over the question, or if he just went directly into the next line. But, but if we were to even pause and think on that for a moment, even if he gave them time to think, I bet that there would have just been silence in that room, just deafening silence. I mean, who, who would leave their sheep in a predicament where it's like that? It would be an economic loss for sure, which would impact them financially. And so, so they probably would have mercy on the sheep and get it out, which is kind of the point. And that's what Jesus' answer, he says in verse 12, well, then of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So the whole goal here of what is Jesus is saying is that mercy being extended to this man on the Sabbath would be a good and wonderful thing to do because he is of worth so much value and worth than a sheep. And if you would help your sheep, why would you not help this guy? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But it's interesting because their original question, right? You remember? But is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so Jesus, in responding, he answers, yes. Yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But then he extends the answer, he expands it to cover a whole lot of other potential scenarios. So Jesus is saying, yes, grab the sheep up out of the pit on that day. Don't let it die. Also heal. So don't, don't refrain from doing good on the Sabbath if the excuse that you're going to give is, well, it's the Sabbath, so I can't show any mercy or any compassion to this person today. I legally cannot help them. I can't help them get the sheep out because the sheep weighs more than a dried fig. So I can't help you today. No, Jesus is saying, no, help. Use the Sabbath as a point to show mercy and compassion. And then notice again that Jesus not only answers the question, but he goes on to do good on the Sabbath. He looks at the man in verse 13. And do you notice what he says to him? Stretch out your hand. Why do you think that's strange? So the whole point of withered hand is that you cannot stretch out your withered hand. That's the whole point. You can't do it. So if you have a withered hand, how do you, how do you, you can't open it. That's the whole point of it. You, and yet Jesus commands him, stretch out your hand. And yet in that moment, Jesus calling the man to do what he cannot do. Simply at Jesus' voice, commanding him to do it. It's like the man's hand that he created just opens. It's this, it's this beautiful thing of him commanding something that the man cannot do in his own strength. And yet in the moment, Jesus gives him the strength to do that which he cannot do. Thus showing incredible mercy and compassion to the man. Thus Jesus commands him and the man responds. He stretched it out and it's restored. It's healthy, just like all the others. Thus, thus Jesus demonstrates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath by healing this man's hand, by doing good and showing mercy on this day. And I was thinking about this. If the story stopped right there, this would be a great story. Right, Pharisees, they get rebuked. The man, he gets healed. We learn the Sabbath is meant for flourishing and mercy and compassion. But notice the story doesn't end there because we have recorded for us the response of the Pharisees. Do you notice what they do after this? They go out and conspire against him. How to destroy him. 
And this word conspired here is a really interesting little word that only comes up one time in the Gospels, and it's right here. And it's defined as a secret agreement to do an unlawful thing. Think about that definition. A secret agreement to do an unlawful thing. See the irony of this situation? They're angry at Jesus because he broke their tradition. But they are going to go break the law and try to kill him. Actually breaking God's law. Not their traditions that they have created. It's fascinating. I mean, the contrast here. I mean, Jesus is using the Sabbath to bring healing, restoration, life. They are using the Sabbath to plot death and destruction and to withhold mercy from people. Is that interesting that contrast is? And you might wonder, well, why? Like, why did they respond this way? Why, being guys who care about the law, knowing the importance of keeping the law, or else God will bring discipline on you, maybe kick you out of the land, so you really want to keep all the law. Why? Why would your go-to be, let's break the law and kill him? That seems extreme. And I was thinking about that. Like some of the possibilities of why and some things we actually see in God's word that we know are true. We know, firstly, that the Pharisees had jealousy over Jesus' ministry. Secondly, we know that hardness of heart is caused by sin in our lives. We also know Jesus pointed out their blatant hypocrisy in front of everyone and their influence was under attack. We also know that those who love darkness more than the light love the darkness and will never come into the light. We know it's because they neglected the weightier matters of the law to uphold their traditions. Ultimately, what Jesus says in the book of John, it's because their father is not Abraham. But rather they are sons of their own father who was a liar from the beginning. Satan himself. Which is another really stinging rebuke to a whole bunch of religious dudes who pride themselves on their religious pedigree. So we don't know if it's one of these reasons or a combination of all of these reasons. Either way, we know that in this moment in Matthew's gospel, this is what seals Jesus' fate for the rest of the book. From here on out, they want him dead. From this moment on, that's kind of the undercurrent of the book that leads all the way to the cross. So in, in, other, in other of the gospels, it's different miracles. In, 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 in the book of Matthew, this is the exact moment that the entire book hinges on. And everything from this point on, Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, everything will lead all the way to the cross. And the interesting thing that you guys have been noticing as a church is up to this point, everything seems to be going really, really well in Jesus' ministry. Right? He comes onto the scene, line of Abraham, the line of David, the Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. He, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, goes into the wilderness, and he is victorious against the temptations of Satan. Then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Then he starts just conquesting and just healing people. He has authority over sickness, authority over demons, authority over all of creation. He sends his disciples out. He chooses his apostles. Things are going really well. And then you get to this verse, chapter 12, verse 14, and everything turns. Everything that started going so well up to this moment will shift. And we'll constantly see opposition all the way until we get to his cross where he'll die. But notice something with me in verse 15. Jesus knows that they are going out and conspiring against him. They're plotting against him. And we see in verse 15 and 16 how he responds. Notice he withdraws and we see that many follow him. Where did they come from? They followed him from where? From the synagogue. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Jesus goes in, heals this guy, and a whole bunch of people just leave with him. That would be a really awkward Sunday. You know what I mean? Some dude shows up, he just heals somebody, and then like three-fourths of you just leave and follow the guy, and the, everyone else is just left there being like, well, that was strange. I don't know. Let's figure out how to kill him. You know, like, that's strange. And it, what, what's so beautiful here is what they see in Jesus is they see something strikingly different, don't they? They see Jesus who has compassion for this man with this withered hand, made whole 
they made healthy. Jesus rebukes these Pharisees, and so, so many of them follow him. Notice as well, Matthew writes that Jesus showed compassion on them. And then we read, he healed them all. Isn't that an interesting next phrase? So it wasn't just this one man with a withered hand that was healed on this Sabbath. He wasn't the only one to experience compassion and care from Jesus. Rather, he was just the first one that day. And then the whole rest of the day is spent with Jesus showing mercy and compassion on all of the rest of them. And it's here where Matthew points out and brings up another prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus' ministry. And this one comes from Isaiah chapter 42. It's in verses 18 to 21 of, of your scripture for today. And if we did a little side-by-side translation, we'd see that Matthew doesn't quote this Isaiah passage word for word. Rather, what he does is he takes the Isaiah passage and he applies it to Jesus. He doesn't want us to miss how this Isaiah text from the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. And while we don't have time to do a deep dive into Isaiah 42, I'm going to point out four great, really awesome predictions that we see from this text. Firstly, we see that Jesus is the servant that the Father has chosen. The one who is his beloved and with whom his soul is well pleased. Secondly, that Jesus has the spirit upon him and that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Thirdly, that the Messiah, Jesus, will not cry aloud or quarrel. Rather, how will he act? He will not break the bruised reed and the smoldering wick he won't quench, meaning he won't trample on the weak or those who are poor in spirit, but rather he will be merciful. Let me just pause there for a moment. Is that, is that how you see Jesus? Compassionate, kind, merciful? Or do you see him as harsh and demanding like the Pharisees? Friends, see that he is patient and gentle with you. And then fourthly, we see this promise that Jesus will one day bring justice to victory. And how in his name the Gentiles will have hope, which is a great promise. That all of those who are abused, mistreated, and all of those from the nations of the world that have been excluded will one day have hope. But how? How will the Gentiles and the abused and the mistreated have hope? How does he fulfill this? Well, firstly, we see Jesus appeasing God's justice against our own sin. See, when we read stories like this, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as the good guy in the Bible. Do you do that when you're reading the Bible? You read through it and you're like, I'm the good guy. Like, I'm the guy with the withered hand. I'm nothing like the Pharisees. But yet, the more that you think about your own life, you're like, oh, dang it. I'm a lot like the Pharisees. I'm kind of a jerk sometimes. And I have these thoughts of what other people should do and how they should act. And I demand it of them. And when they don't do what I think they should do, I get really angry. Oh, man. I am like the Pharisees. I also deserve judgment against me for what I've done. Thus, firstly, we see Jesus appeases all of God's justice against our own sin by being the one who would stand condemned in our place for our sin. See, as I mentioned, our greatest problem is that we are like the Pharisees. We all have religious hearts. We love to excuse our sin, and we love to condemn other people. And we are so slow to show mercy and compassion when they need it. See, our greatest problem is that we have all, all of us, earned God's judgment. We all deserve to face his justice against our sins. And yet God, in his infinite mercy, has shown compassion to us. As Jesus, God the Son, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time to live a perfect life of obedience, the life we ought to have lived, a life always in obedience to the laws of the Father. And then he who was without sin stood condemned in our place, taking upon himself the punishment, the judgment, the justice of God that we ought to experience. And he was crushed by it. He died. But then three days later, he rose bodily from the dead, conquering over the grave so that we who are guilty can be pardoned and forgiven. Thus Jesus appeased the justice against our own sins so that we might have hope. The hope of being forgiven by God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that actually is what is available for you today. Jesus doesn't look at you and say, measure up, be better. We often think he's like that. He's like the Pharisees. Like, I have laws and you've broken them. Measure up, sucker. But that's not what he does. Rather, he has great compassion for you. That's the point of the cross. Is God's amazing compassion and justice on display. That he will not forsake you. He will not condemn you. Rather, he will forgive you and pardon you. If you will but come believing upon him. He won't, he won't break you if you're a bruised reed. He won't put you out. He, he, will, 
He will love you and show you grace. And then for my Christian brothers and sisters, we who have tasted and seen and known his kindness and mercy, this is what he continues to do. He continues to beckon us in this. That we started by grace and through faith, so don't fall into the trap that we can be perfected by rules and morals and regulations. The law cannot perfect you. And when you're suffering and walking through tragedy, when you're bruised, know that he will not break you. Rather, he will bind your wounds and he will put balm on you. He's not harsh with his people, so don't be harsh to those around you. Strive to show the mercy and compassion that you've experienced from him to those around you. Now, before we close, I want to bring up the question that probably has been percolating in your mind this entire sermon. You're like, okay, so I'm not the Jews, but do Christians, do I need to observe the Sabbath? So, I figured we'd already hit that because it's Sunday and it's in our text and we're already here. So, do we need to observe the Sabbath? Now, I'm going to start by saying there might be some disagreement from us in the room on this matter coming from different backgrounds, different Canadian cities, different countries. So if you disagree with me and run me out of town, that's fine. My flight's on Monday and I'll be back in Winnipeg. So that's fine. Uh, but I'm praying it would be helpful. So as far as we know from our study, uh, Israel was commanded, remember, to observe the Sabbath, to not work one day a week, to intentionally inhibit themselves from producing anything, to remember that God is their ultimate provider because they were made physical creations, thus they need a rest. Secondly, they're due so to remember, to remember who God is and to remember how God has redeemed them from slavery. So, as Christians, we see a lot of our own story in the story of Israel, do we not? We, who once were bound to the will of Satan, have now been liberated by Jesus. So, it's a good thing, it's a very good thing to remember at least weekly, but more so hour by hour, of who God is and how he has liberated us from slavery and adopted us by grace into his family. So then you might wonder, well, should we keep the Sabbath? And the answer seems obvious. Like it made the top ten. You know, the top ten commandments, it's number four. And so just as I'm never going to ever, ever, ever preach as a pastor a sermon that says, I know Jesus says, or God, God gave us in the ten commandments, the, the commandment number six, to not murder. I know we see that, you know, don't murder. But I'm going to tell you why murdering is okay. Likewise, I, I would never... I would never look at like commandment number four and say, I know this is in there, but don't do it. Uh, that's a terrible idea. I, I wouldn't do that. But it does stand out that of the Ten Commandments, the command to keep the Sabbath is the only one that is ceremonial in nature, whereas all the others of them are moral in scope. It's also interesting to note that while the other nine are brought up over and over again throughout the New Testament... In those lists, you know what's interesting is that the only one that isn't commanded in the New Testament is keeping the Sabbath in the same way. Right, so for example, you guys went through the Sermon on the Mount, right? What passage of the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus talk about Sabbath? Doesn't. That's interesting, isn't it? If he, as the king, is talking about the rules of the kingdom of how you ought to live as his people, doesn't talk about that's interesting. And yet it is interesting. He doesn't mention it. And then if we were to fast forward, maybe to Acts chapter 15. If you remember from Acts chapter 15, there's this council of Jerusalem. And the main question that they're wrestling with is, what do we do with all these Gentiles who keep coming to faith in Jesus? What do we lay on them? What do we require of them when they become Christians? And you know the interesting thing about Acts 15? Sabbath is not mentioned at all. That would seem like a great moment. Like, all these Gentiles, none of them celebrate the Sabbath. Put that in there. Not there. That's interesting. In addition to that, Paul sheds further light on this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Thus, in the book of Colossians, Paul calls Sabbath a shadow. All it's meant to do is point to Jesus. The same way, like, if you came up to me and we were out here on the sidewalk, you walked up, I wouldn't look at your shadow and say, what's up, shadow? Like, that would be weird, right? That would be strange. The shadow is meant to point to Christ. Thus, the same thing is true here of the Sabbath is what Paul is saying. Then what's interesting is in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 8, we have this entire conversation about God's intention 
for his covenant people to enter into Sabbath rest. But interestingly, entrance into this rest comes not by our own works, but by resting from our own works and trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. So we have this conclusion, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, which reads, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered into God's rest, God's Sabbath, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Then Paul writes, Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Thus, if we were going to put together all those things, we come to understand that Sabbath rest, true rest that's been promised by God, that was foreshadowed through Sabbath rest in the Old Testament, but fulfilled in the New Testament, is not something that we enter into as Christians by rule-keeping or by religious fervor or by refraining from external activities. Rather, you enter into Sabbath rest by refraining from your good works and putting your faith and trust in Jesus' good works in your place. That's the only way to actually enter into Sabbath rest. So, so Sabbath rest, therefore, isn't to be a one-day experience for the Christian, but rather it's to be a constant, continual experience that you always have as a Christian, where you're not trusting in your works, but you're trusting in Jesus' works for your salvation, and you're resting from your striving to please God by rule keeping. So if you are a Christian, you're constantly resting in the finished work of Jesus and remembering the character and nature of God and desiring to show mercy and compassion to others as you've been shown mercy and compassion by Jesus. So if you are a Christian, you have entered into that promised rest. Thus having a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, you can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace in times of need. So then, you might wonder, well, is Sabbath-keeping abolished in the New Testament then? Like, is it only an Old Testament thing? My answer might surprise you. I would say no. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish laws, but rather to fulfill them. And Sabbath is one of those ceremonial commands for the nation of Israel, but it exists as a shadow. So we don't need to get fixated on the shadow, but rather the one that the shadow points to. Now... Interestingly, in the book of Matthew, Sabbath-keeping plays a really big part of the earned current of the story, as I, as I mentioned. If you remember from last week, though, uh, Graham didn't preach Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And here's why. So I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll talk about the importance of this hinge. So Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then immediately what we see in chapter 12 is these confrontations over and over again about Sabbath keeping. So do you remember how important structure is to our understanding of the book of Matthew? So if we were to ask, well, what is Matthew trying to tell us? Well, Matthew is trying to tell us Jesus is our rest. That's what he's pointing to. From 11 right into 12, Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. Come to him. So don't be enamored with the shadow. Rather, come to Jesus. He's here. He's inviting you. So, so that Sabbath isn't taking off a day a week. It's no longer working for what you can't attain, but realizing it in the work of Jesus. He is our rest. So don't go back to that. So, so the Pharisees, Pharisees, they had worked hard at finding rest, but they couldn't find it. And Jesus is offering true rest that can only be found in him. So I'm going to close with some pastoral counsel in regards to Sabbath keeping. Should you keep a Sabbath? I think you should. I think it would be great for you. Is it a law? You must do it? No. But is it a good thing to do? Yes and amen. But I'm going to say, should you keep the Sabbath? Yes and amen. I'm going to give you a couple of qualifications. I'm going to give you seven of them. They're going to come fast and then we're going to be done. You ready? All right. Number one, if you keep a Sabbath, Firstly, let it be a day of remembrance. Let it be a day of remembrance that God brought you as a Christian out of slavery. So make much of Jesus. Secondly, let it be an act of worship. Celebrate the reality that you are a new creation. So worship that your rest is in Christ and praise him for it. Thirdly, let it be an event that bears witness. 
testifying to the world that God is in control and that you aren't provided for by your work alone. Rather, trust in God. So what your rest is to do is to prove that you trust in him. Like, like I have a garden at home that my wife planted and things grow there. We planted it, we water it, and then over time, little bit by little bit, things grow. I don't have to stay awake at night and water it every night, all night long to make sure that it grows. It just grows. And so we can work hard knowing that God is in control over everything and that he alone is the one that gives growth. So don't live as if your forward progression in life is based on your work alone, but rather trust and rest on him and his provision. Fourthly, let it be done in recognition that you are human too. Like you need rest. You're a created being. And, and Jesus gives you permission to rest and, and even calls you to. We see in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, that Jesus went with his disciples to a desolate place and they ate good food. I don't know what their food was, but it was good. Uh, and so some of you, Jesus is saying, hey, come away, just eat and, eat and have some rest. Fifthly, let it be held loosely. Don't let it fall back into legalism. Friends, we all have seasons where we will work long hours and many days in a row. There may be seasons where for a month or two, you're working every day for 80 to 90 hours a week because you're just in a season of killing it. I don't think that's sinful to do. In the same way, I don't think it's sinful if you only work five days a week and take two days off. If the command is take a Sabbath and you have a Saturday and a Sunday, I don't think you're disobedient. I don't think you have to work six days and then take a day off. But also if you're in a busy season, if you are working a lot, then you might work a couple of weeks in a row and then maybe have a couple of weeks off or however that might work with your schedule. But I just don't want you to be legalistic with it. Sixthly, if we are asking, well, what day should you Sabbath? Then the question is, well, it doesn't really matter. By saying that, I want to remind you of Romans chapter 14, where Paul says one, a person, one person esteems this day, another person esteems this day. So if you value one specific day, then esteem it. And if it doesn't matter to you, then you're free. But if you esteem one day, then don't just judge anyone else because they don't have the same day that you think it should be. So if Wednesday is your Sabbath, great. If you're like, nope, I'm going to join my Jewish friends and Saturday is going to be my Sabbath, great. Whatever you want. And lastly, you might wonder, well, what should you do on your Sabbath? I would just say anything good. Anything good. Get into God's word. Gather with God's people. Remember God's promises. Eat and drink good food. Not bad food. Eat and drink good stuff. It should be filled, I would say, with whatever isn't normal in your everyday life. But make it, make it different and restful and good. My, one of my mentors, he wraps up this list by reminding us that our Sabbath might end up being a time where where we actually end up pulling out a lot of sheep from a lot of ditches. You might go into a day thinking, this is going to be a day of rest, and it may not be. You may get a lot of phone calls. You may have a lot of things. Ditches may, sheep may fall into ditches, and they might need to be taken out. And that might be your Sabbath that day, is doing good by pulling sheep out of ditches. Or in more modern context, maybe one of your friends has walked through something really bad on that day. On that day, don't let your answer be, oh, sorry, it's my Sabbath. I can't come help you today. Because then the whole point of that day is you're using that day for the good of others to serve them. So, so don't be super legalistic. Don't, don't turn down asks that would really benefit another image bearer on that day. Don't turn down opportunities to help your non-Christian neighbor or serve your brothers and sisters for the sake of keeping some self-made regulations around the Sabbath. And don't think that it's holy to do so. Rather, use Sabbath as a reminder of the gospel to rejoice in freedom that you have in Christ. Put aside some normal rhythms of work so that you can actively trust in God as your provider. Get into the word, encourage and exhort the saints. Go for a walk or a hike or sit or read, eat and drink, doing all those things for the glory of God. And use every moment of your life to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Particularly enjoying the rest that Jesus has come to provide for you as you lay down your life for the benefit of those around you. So, you can now run me out of town, and that'll be fine. Uh, but these would be some suggestions I would have for you. If you're going to celebrate that day, remember, firstly, that a day cannot provide for you what Christ can. 
to remember Christ in all of it. And more importantly than all of those, enter into the rest that Christ has come to give you, the true rest. Trust in him as your God, Savior, and King, and remember the gospel often. For then you will actually have rest for your soul. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.